You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was the incredibly gifted, inspired, articulate, intelligent, not just intelligent, but even intellectual, curious, Mike Reynolds. Um, Mike is Mike is a combat artist in the Marine Corps. Let me get that out of the way. I did not know he was a combat artist in the Marine Corps when I first saw him and saw his work on Instagram. I was just like, hey, these are really cool charcoal pieces, some watercolors that I saw. Um, it's just really interesting. I, I loved his use of light and shadow, and I loved his use of, um, I loved how he was portraying the Marines that he was capturing on on, uh, on paper. And I just thought he was really talented. And it said, I think it said in his Instagram bio, something about it, like he was an active duty Marine, <clears throat> but didn't mention the combat arts program. So I just thought, oh, here's this diamond in the rough that's, you know, in the fleet somewhere drawing pictures. And turns out, uh, you know, no, he's, he's, he's a Marine Corps combat artist. So I'm slowly picking off every Marine Corps combat artist to come on this show, uh, which is a great problem to have. And I, I, you know, as I've said before, as I said, especially in the Chris Battles episode, um, you know, I'm so impressed with that program and the pride that it install, instills in the Marines and its centrality to Marine Corps messaging and Marine Corps history and the Marine Corps legacy. Hmm. Sorry, I got to do a quick sidebar. I know there's a million articles. I know this is going to seem crazy off topic, but I keep hitting the cough button. I think I've caught the cough button most times. There might be some times I've had to clear my throat that you guys have heard. I just switched back to milk. There's that. I was doing the oat milk, almond milk thing, and, and I know that's, you know, I don't know. I was on trend with that, and now I've just read, like, there's a bunch of stuff, and you're not supposed to do that as much. So I'm trying to go back to dairy, and I just keep having to clear my throat all the time. So anyway, I don't feel like erasing this intro and re-recording it, so I'm just acknowledging this right now. <laughs> so I can – so, guys, thank you for bearing with me as I – cough and clear my throat a million times. Anyway, my point being, um, Mike embodies a trend, uh, not a trend, that's not the right word, a characteristic that I, I need to acknowledge that I keep seeing in my interviews of veteran artists of, of many different media. And that is the characteristic of the art being bigger than just their personal brand. And that's very unique. I mean, we've talked many times on this show about the quote, this is my phrase, it might not be totally appropriate, but I'll take the hit if it isn't, uh, the quote-unquote necessary narcissism of being an artist. That since nobody's begging, nobody's ever come out of the womb being begged to be an artist. You know, it's something you have to pursue. No one's going to ask you to do it. No one cares if you make it as an artist. So that requires a degree of self-centeredness, a degree of tunnel vision, a degree of focus on your art <clears throat> against all naysayers and in, in spite of astounding indifference to what you're trying to do, you really have to will your art into existence. And that, that takes a degree of self-centeredness. Um, and I think that's 
understandable and, and, you know, that's the cost of doing business. What I've noticed is this characteristic in many veteran artists that seems to, I don't know if it totally refutes that, but it definitely minimizes that trait an awful lot in a way that I find to be very impressive. Um, You know, talking to Mike, I tried to bait him into, you know, hey, what does it take for you to really indulge? And what does it take for you to really, you know, um, you do all that? And, you know, I mean, obviously he talked about, and this is not a spoiler, but he talked about, you know, uh, taking some time in the morning and telling his wife, hey, I've got to go, you know, I want to go draw or whatever. And that's fine. But Mike, Mike seems to have very clear left and right limits of where the place in his life where art fits into his life and how it and and the fact that his art is not just about himself it is about the marines and the stories and there's a drive there's a there's a selfless um service that mike is doing through his art and i think i'm, I'm i don't want to speak for him but my takeaway was that that's a major part of why he does what he does. And that I'm starting to realize that's, that's a bigger characteristic than I had thought. Cause that's not the first time I've been surprised. I've, I've gotten different answers than I think I would have gotten from most civilian artists, most civilian artists. And this is not wrong. This is not a criticism. I think necessarily are trying to build their brand and it's like, yeah, this is my vision and et cetera, et cetera. And <clears throat> with Mike, with many other folks we've had on the show, but Mike articulated, I think, very well. There is this real sense of, well, I'm really here to serve the subject matter. And I want to deliver an impact to an audience on behalf of my mission, my subject matter. My, um, In Mike's case, he, he talked a lot about his, his um, affection. Affection's not the right word. His... Um, the, the 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 fundamental need for critical thinking and for uh, curiosity and for enlightenment. And I think those are um, at the core of a lot of what drives Mike and drives his art. And I just think that's a really interesting <clears throat> approach that I don't think a lot of civilian artists would mirror. Again, not better or worse. It's just a different. It's a different way of looking at what you do, and I find that it's refreshing. It's interesting, and um, you know, I you know I I think the proof is in the pudding. And Mike's art is really impressive stuff. So it works for him. It's just incredible. Anyway, so I wanted to get, kind of give a shout out to that because I think that's that's a, a characteristic worth highlighting. In in Mike certainly. And in uh, more than a few others that have voiced that on the show. Okay, without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is The Savage Wonder of Mike Reynolds. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Oh, dude, I'm really glad to have you on. And I want to tell you, um, as a way of a compliment and as an intro, I want to tell you why I was excited to have you on. And it was one 
particular line of your bio where it said where you said that you had a passion for uh, you know creating artwork um, that because art should tell a story and the stories of the GWAT demand to be told. Hundred percent, right? I think that's and it, it, I think I think for a lot of people it goes without saying. I think if they're a veteran artist, but I think sometimes it needs to be said. And I think it's important to front load that. And I think it's an important um, component of the warrior path in this country, that it's our duty to share that with those that haven't walked that path. But you tell me, I mean, what what were you thinking with it? Yeah. So um, I am a, like my father served in the air force, I think to get out of the Vietnam war. Um, but like, you know, he chose the less of a couple of different evils uh-huh. anyway. So I don't come from a long lineage of military history and background in my family tree. However, like since joining the Marine Corps and being able to observe our generation, you get to also observe the generations of those who have come before us. And, um, I think we all kind of understand the history of, uh, what happened with, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, um, and even, you know, the early stages of Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Um, And there's some history there, but like the incredible history that we've created as a generation of service members, there's so much that needs to be recorded for history, right? And I think the victors in any... um, you know, battle, war, or whatever, always get a a vote in what goes down in the history books. But that doesn't injustice to the individuals who have a story to tell. And I think, in my own personal lens, that artwork can help aid those non-written stories by documenting the experiences of those individuals in an immersive environment, as well as being able to aid in the verbal discussions, right? The oftentimes we break out a publication or a magazine, or Mm -hmm. there's a piece of artwork hanging in your company executives, uh, you know, corner office suite. And you're like, wow, you're a human underneath all of this. Tell me about that piece of artwork. Um, Aside from just something looking cool on your, on your wall, um, it helps tell a story, right? And if all it does is peaks, a discussion about military service in defense of this great experiment that we call the Western world, then my goal has been satiated, right? We've been able to open the door for a conversation to something that's so much greater than just, you know, picture or painting on the wall. So you talked about the victors always having a vote in how that story is told. Um, And that presumably I assumed where you're going with that is that there's other voices as well. I'll never forget a history professor of mine once said, it's not the victors that write the history, it's the enlightened that write the history, which I always thought was an interesting delineation. That assumes yeah. that the enlightened are still alive in order to tell the story. But yes, I, I, I think he had a, it was, it's an interesting point. What did you think, though? Do you think there's other people besides presumably just the combatants or just the nominal victor of a conflict that has a oh. story to tell? And then how do we do that? How is that accessed? So, we, so we've seen some really great recreations in recent, um, you know, modern media with um, social media is, is you've got a whole bunch of content creators 
you know, putting out information and whatever. You've always got the fear of misinformation. But let's go back to World War II and um, talk about the Marines on Iwo Jima, right? They were fighting a belligerent who was the Japanese Imperial Army. And these folks had gone to an island and dug themselves in and prepared for what they had assumed was going to be like the last stand of um, the Imperial East. They've got a story to tell as well, right? And if we ever, I, I think the military has got a, a means of dehumanizing our enemies, mm-hmm. um, maybe for like a psychological protection act. Sure. But, sure. but in the same sense, like the enlightened understand that those are humans and fathers and uncles and aunts and brothers as well. Um, what I'm getting at is there's some really good videos and analysis done that projects the mindset of the opposing force. Um, specifically in Iwo Jima, I just watched it a couple nights ago mm. and it talks about like what the Japanese had done in preparation for the land assault. And as an individual who's been stationed in Japan, I was able to go to both Hiroshima and Nagasaki's war mm-hmm. memorials, right? Mm-hmm. Where the atomic bombs were dropped. Um, and the perspective shift is astonishing, right? And of course, like terrible, terrible times, um, and war is absolutely ugly. And anybody who tries to glorify it or romanticize it Mm -hmm. probably hasn't truly experienced Mm -hmm. it. Um, but being able to see a different perspective really put a lot more context into like the after effects with me at least. Um, and it was really interesting. And if we're able to do that with our artwork, I think it also helps to tell our story. Um, you know, we've lost, and I don't want to say lost, right. But, but several engagements have not been victorious, right? Like we've lost friends and family and, um, no matter how we look at that or cut those, um, cut that picture up, the loss of a friend or a service member or a brother or a sister, that's a loss, right? And no matter how you cut it, and it's that platoon mate story, like the guy who he was bunk mates with back at the patrol base, who after that patrol comes back and his friend isn't in his rack, like that guy's got a story to tell. And how do you tell that story, right? How do we document that story? So some of the artwork that I focus on um, doesn't get to that nitty gritty detail necessarily of telling an individual story, but I mm-hmm. try to do something that everybody can at some level relate to. I, I, I'm just inspired to ask this question. It might be completely nonsensical. So let me throw that caveat out there to start with. Sure. If a freaking Al-Qaeda fighter got out and for some reason saw a gallery display of your artwork, what do you think they would take away? So interesting you say that. I've got um, some artwork along with some other Marine Corps combat artists in gallery. Um, We were invited to, you know, display our artwork in their veteran art exhibit down in Fort Lauderdale. And in preparation for that, I had to submit some little snippets and stuff to hang up next to the to the artwork. And um, 
I think I submitted like 30 pieces of which they said, Hey, we're going to pick like 15. So cool. So I sent it all down and I was concerned, right? Because, um, 2002, 2004, I was a much different person than I am now. Um, and from a cultural, cultural perspective, I think we've also shifted and changed. Um, and I don't want to say that there was prejudice, um, but there was most certainly like an us and them mentality. Sure. And by them, I mean the local population of where we were operating mm-hmm. in which we could not easily distinguish enemy from uh, non-combatant. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that I battled with in my head is like, what if a viewer of this gallery goes in um, and doesn't agree with my perspective or doesn't like my artwork or whatever, and let's just say is from Iraq, right? And like has come to the United States and, you know, uh, immigrated to the United States or whatever, mm-hmm. or through mm-hmm. familial ties. Like we're that far apart that a college student could have been a child that we interacted with while on that deployment. Like there's sure. been enough time and proximity for that to happen. So I struggled a little bit but it goes back to perspective, right? And the perspective that I saw and I experienced was that of what I've displayed on a piece of paper with charcoal. Um, and I, I think I can be confident in the fact that it's not offensive. It's a perspective, right? And nothing that I do is intended to be you know, directly offensive or provocative or anything, mm-hmm. although it does evoke an emotion or maybe evokes an emotion in some viewers. Um, it's not intended to be, you know, jaw droppingly uh, grotesque or um, offensive or, you know, unified in one or another's patriotism. So, you know, one of the things that I'm, um, um kind of thinking best how to articulate listening to all this is I think a tension that we sometimes have in the military and maybe even in the country with how to present ourselves. Cause while you were talking about that, I was like, you know, if you went and I'm, I'm spitballing, somebody can, some internet detective can go prove me wrong if, if I'm off base here, but I have a feeling that if you were to go see an artwork display by let's say, immediate family members of the Viet Cong, you know, in say the eighties after the Vietnam war had ended and they do a retrospective and I can see Americans going to view that and go, Oh my God, look at how they saw us. Oh, we're these terrible demons or something like that. But they're not sitting there neurotic worrying about, Oh, what are Americans? Are they, we're going to offend them by them coming to see this because there's an understanding that war is an inherently high blood pressure activity where you cannot take in a holistic 360 degree view of a human being. It's like if you were and it, and it's not only war, but it's even a wrestling match. I mean, you can't go into a wrestling match and go, where did this human being come from? Like you're in the fight. You got to focus on just the opponent are, there. Right. So, okay. My son who is seven years old does jujitsu. Right. And he is like, you brought up wrestling and, um, I brought up dehumanizing your opponent, right? And 
his first ever jiu-jitsu match, right? So this is seven years old, super impressionable. If you've ever read Jordan B. Peterson, he mm-hmm. talks about the two lobsters, right? I had just finished reading chapter one of 12 Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson. And I'm like super pumped. And, you know, I'm looking at at this jujitsu match as a dad. I'm not a coach. I'm not mm-hmm. one of his instructors or professors. I am just looking at this as a father and my son is a lobster about to go into combat and he is either going to develop genetically as a winner or a loser based on the next 30 seconds of his life. So I, I like, I pull him in real close and I was like, look, man, I know this guy's got, you know, 10 pounds on you. I know he's bigger than you, but he doesn't have the drive and fight that you do. I want you to, as soon as he says go, there is one speed and that's a hundred percent. If you give me 99%, I'm a hundred percent dissatisfied. So a hundred percent, this is not another kid. This is your enemy and it is kill or be killed. Let's go. He says, go. And my son did like the perfect double leg takedown, bounced the kid's head off the mat. He fell out and started crying. My son at that point was like, oh my God, what have I done? Right. And one of the other mothers came on to like tend to her, her son and sportsmanship aside, like, yes, we're going to address the sportsmanship. But first I have to say, that's exactly what you were supposed to do you were better prepared than he was. And you have to have that drive every single time. 100% do not ever let up when the the light goes green. Now go make sure he's okay, right? Like go give him a hug, go tell him he's okay. Be a good sportsmanship to the, to the practicing of jujitsu. And since then, my son's been on fire with jujitsu and he's, when the light goes green, he's a different kid on the mats. But right before the match, he's, he's like tuning out everybody. And as soon as the match is over, he's like, Hey man, that was awesome. Like we had a lot of fun. I can't wait to do it again. Um, Maybe you'll get me next time. Like he's really developed the sportsmanship part of it. And that makes me proud as a father. And I think the same goes like as adults, we need to do that. Right. We're in a profession of arms. And our profession needs to be 100% when the light turns green. I'm really glad you said that. And I'll tell you the the particular angle I have, or I wouldn't call it a chip on my shoulder because it's not that, it it doesn't bother me to that extent. But I do think it's worth mentioning, doing work with veteran artists and talking with veteran artists and trying to, you know, stay at the intersection of war and art or, or some warrior, some degree of warrior path in art. I think there's a misconception among a lot of artists or people in the arts community writ large. I'm generalizing, obviously that, Oh, Hey, isn't this great? The people from the military are doing art. Now they can understand how inhumane and wrong war is. And to me, I'm like, no, like you don't get it. Like it's a path. I think art is incredibly important. It has its place. It's probably not right there when you're breaching the door, but right. afterwards, years after when you're trying to unpack, it not only has a place and can be very therapeutic, but then if you are good at it, there's a commercial possibility and it's a great linchpin to sync up your military service with a civilian community and let them understand. And it's and that's why going back to your you know, quote about the stories of the GWAT demanding to be told, 
that I think that's so crucial because I think for a lot of people, they think that the turning the swords into plowshares is the end all be all of art. And I'm like, well, turn the swords into plowshares after the swords have done what they needed to do because the swords have a job. And let's let's be clear, that job is incredibly important. And if they don't do their job, nobody's picking up a paintbrush. You know, that right. that that doesn't happen. That's really hard to do in Syria. You know, it's like you need the swords first. And then, yes, by all means, use the art to process. So I'm, I'm, I know this is not much of a question. It's, it's mostly just piggybacking on what you said, but I think it's really worth emphasizing because I think there's a big misconception about us in when we when we're veterans and trying to do artistic pursuits that we are somehow surrendering the warrior side of who we are and we're or or. Um, kind of atoning for it or shucking it in some way. And it's like, no, 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 this is an embrace. It's a path. The warrior can become an artist, but the warrior needed to exist and maybe still needs to exist in each of us individually. I think there's a saying, and I'm going to butcher it, but it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener at war. And um, to have the skills of being an artist and and the art of storytelling, because that's what it is, right? Uh, it's the art of storytelling. One of the things the Marine Corps prides itself in is our history. And there's a couple of really notable individuals on social media right now that are turning the tides in terms of utilizing social media as a means to engage and promote like good and critical thinking. Um, and he says, you know, our one battles from yesteryear do not predict our ability to operate in the future. Um, so don't rest on your laurels in the idea that what we've done in our past dictates our victory in the future, um, which I think is totally, totally applicable, um, mm-hmm. especially now in this, um, you know, interwar period. <laughs> right. Or whatever it is right now. I know. Who knows? I'm, I'm not crazy, right? It feels like, like there has definitely been a changing of the guard in the last year or two. Right. Totally. I, 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 totally. I, I mean, I got out in 21, in February of 21, but I felt like I was leaving at the right. I was like, yeah, I think this is the tactical, the capital T, capital P tactical pause moment. Uh, and not that the GWAT, I guess, really technically still is going on. But no, man, it, it ended on New Year's Day. Oh, what did it really? Offici- officially. And yeah, now you've got young, <clears throat> young folks walking around with the national defense ribbon calling guys without it boots. Oh, dear God. Wow. So what are we doing in Iraq? That's not the GWAT anymore. That's what, what, what is yeah, that? That's, now? that's, uh, I think partner building or something. Uh, I don't, okay. I'm not. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Idea. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you do any art besides military art in your own time for your own sake, just even just for yourself or does all yes. kind of always come back to the military into war combat art? So let me give some background on who I am. Uh, maybe we should have started with this. No, I, I know uh, I'm jumping all over the place and I, 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 we definitely will drill down on your, on your, your bio <laughs> and your, in your whole life, but yeah, I'm, I'm so, approaching it from left field. It's good. It's good. So I started my Marine Corps career after September 11th. I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I dropped out of college. The only college class that I was going to was art. Um, it's the only one that I was drawn to no pun intended. Um, I wanted to be a pharmacist. 9-11 happened and I said, hey, I've, I've got to do something. Um, so my brother was in the Marine Corps at the time. 
Um, I called him up and I said, Hey man, I want to do something in this medical field. And he's like, well, you're going to have to join the Navy and the chances of you becoming a greenside corpsman are pretty slim. Just join the Marines. We have better uniforms anyway. So I was sold. I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, I was, you know, doing my thing with, uh, some artillery units. I was an ammo tech. Um, so the guy that like counts bullets and is the subject matter on explosives. So doing all that stuff, uh, then I became a warrant officer. I did that for a couple of years. And then um, it's even more of a niche community. I became a limited duty officer. Um, but as a warrant officer, I was stationed in Quantico where the Marine Corps does the basic school. And the basic school is 100% of officers go through this uh, foundational course, which teaches humans leadership through the lens of the infantry platoon commander um one time a year they do the warrant officer basic course so this for anybody who's not tracking anybody who is previously enlisted doesn't have a college degree but is in a job that is specifically you know uh technical they've got the warrant officer program um you apply to it you you know go up in the chain of command in, in terms of hierarchy, like a chief warrant officer outranks the senior enlisted guy, but still is outranked by every other conventional officer. So you become this like little subject matter expert and you wear different rank insignia. Um, you're, and you're not so the a third lieutenant. Officer, and you're not, yeah, you're not a third <laughs> lieutenant. Don't you dare you're think like you're a third wise, lieutenant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're the wise old man, you know, that, that you're just the old guy who knows everything. Um, Anyway, those warrant officers go through an abbreviated version of the basic school. They remove the requirements for like um, swim qualification, rifle range, pistol range, and martial arts training, right? So that takes two months out of the training cycle. They go to Quantico for four months and learn officer leadership through the lens of a infantry platoon commander. That course is instructed by other, um, it is instructed by Marine officers at the grade of captain. Um, so when warrant officers come through, some of these guys have been in, you know, 12, 13, you know, up to 16 years, right, enlisted, then go through a course to learn how to be a leader by a guy who's been doing this for five or six years, right? So it's a big paradigm shift for these guys like mental housing group and, um, to enable effective leadership through that course, what they do is they open the invitation to all the chief warrant officers that work in that area and say, hey, would you like to be an assistant to the platoon commander and help him teach the nuanced things that warrant officers do or are expected of them? So I had volunteered for that for a couple of years um, and it's totally effective. The, the number one thing you tell these guys is like, hey, I got it, you've been in the Marine Corps for 15 years. He's been in the Marine Corps for five years, but he's got a Mameluke sword and has been an officer for five years and you haven't even purchased yours yet. So like, listen to what he says because there's value in it. Um, anyway, I got paired up with a couple of really great captains um, as a chief warrant officer assisting with uh, warrant officer basic course. But really interesting, I got paired up with this guy, um, CJ Bauman, who um, I walked into his office one day and he's got these like incredible drawings on his walls, right? I think like 
I'm gesturing for the podcast, but on the wall behind me in this video, there's a piece hanging on my wall of his. Um, but I was like, Hey, can you talk to me about these? These are awesome. Like I did a long time with artillery. Tell me about this artillery piece. And just like we opened this conversation with his artwork piqued my interest Mm. to start and engage in a conversation. And he, at that point was like, yeah, so I'm in the Marine Corps combat art program. And I'm like, wait, what is that? Right. And then we started diving down this rabbit hole. A couple months later, COVID happens. Um, forces everybody into a lockdown. And I... Oh, wow, so this was recently. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this you. was 2020. Yeah. So, you know, totally influenced by this, this uh, captain who does drawings and sketches. I was like, man, maybe, maybe I'm inspired. And if I can't go out and do what I want, maybe I'll just like crack open a couple of books and take to the internet and try to figure out how to draw again. So I did. And I started drawing and sketching and stuff and showed some of the work to him. And I'm sure, you know, at the time he was like, yeah, man, these are great. You should totally like keep doing it because it's not that great. Right. Um, But he gave some really critical analysis and he was like, Hey man, so these are good, but this is what I think you should focus on. And and just to be Um, clear, just to interrupt for one second, you had not been drawing on your spare time since college. Yeah. So I had designed unit t-shirts and logos and, and coins and, and painted our unit logo on the side of trucks and stuff like that. Right. Nothing, nothing cool, nothing good. This was, you know, before the digital age, this yep. was all like a pencil drawing. And I was yep. like, yeah, let's throw this on a t-shirt and raise some money for the Marine Corps ball. But were you the kind of guy that when left to your own devices in your downtime, you would have a sketch pad or you would doodle? Or not? No. Okay. Before meeting CJ Bauman, I played guitar and I ran ultra marathons. Gotcha. Like I never. Gotcha. Yeah, I hyperfixate on one thing at a time, mm, right? So it was. Yeah. It was hyperfixation on um, running triathlons, and then that turned into running ultra marathons, and then that turned into um, something else. And then, not to say like I've completed those tasks and I don't need to master them anymore. But it's always something to learn, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's always like a science and an art to it. So in both aspects, like I was drawn to do this art thing. And then, you know, CJ provided me some very relevant guidance. And mm. hey man, your drawings are good, but if you're not drawing from life, you're um, curbing your ability. What does that so, mean? Explain that. What do you mean drawing? To draw from life means like to actually go out in an environment with a sketch pad and like there's some Marines sitting over there, mm. draw them, right? Opposed to a, a photographic reference. If I look at a, you know, if I look at my phone, that image is already in two dimensions. I can quickly, you know, measure it with a pencil and figure out how far his nose is from his ear. And I can mm. convert those measurements to a piece of paper. It's already in two dimensions and it's not moving. When you're drawing from life, you're trying to capture the essence of a scene, not just the subject in which you're drawing. So um, that has been a hobby of mine. It's really difficult to find the time to do it because you're balancing, you know, being a father, a husband, um, a full-time Marine, a you know, student to your craft, and then doing this artwork gig so it's it's like the trifecta of balance Um, and if you can achieve that balance 
it's pretty good. Did you get a billet? Did you get a combat artist billet? Yeah. So, um, I had listened to the Chris battles episode, um, oh. earlier this week and he introduced the Marine Corps combat art program. Um, so the Marine Corps published this message to all hands and said, Hey, we're looking for combat artists. We're looking for people with very specific skill sets. If you have them put together a portfolio and submit it, um, along with some other like administrative stuff. So I did that. Counseled by CJ Bauman. Um, I put together my portfolio. We, you know, reviewed 40 images and came up with mm -hmm. the best 20 um, and put them in a portfolio, submitted them to the National Museum of the Marine Corps, uh, along with the curator, the um, director of the museum, the, the artist in residence, Chris Battles, and a panel of other former combat artists. They voted. Um, I don't know how many total applicants they got, but I think out of everything that was submitted, three were selected, of which I was one. Wow. What did that mean to you when you were selected? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you were happy, but I mean, did it, was it just only validation or was there another takeaway that you had from it? Did it mean something about where your life was headed or what talent lay within that maybe had been dormant for a while? Like, what did you take away from that? So I'm going to answer that by telling a story. I can remember when I was a staff sergeant, um, I was, you know, shooting the shit with the Marines in the office one day. And, um, I was like, damn it. If I don't have duty this weekend, like I got to go stand, um, duty. I got to stand by this phone on a Saturday for 24 hours. And if it rings, I got to answer, right? Like it's, it's pain in the ass. Nobody wants to do it. I'd much rather be riding my bike or running. Um, and just so happened, this guy, Sergeant Major Dave Job, who was our regimental Sergeant Major, was walking outside the office and heard me say that and yoked me up real quick and said, hey, I just want to let you know that you don't have to stand duty. And I was like, oh, sweet. Like, I don't I don't have duty this weekend. He's like, no, 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 you get to stand duty. And I was I was like, what? Again, a shift of perspective. Not everybody has the chance to do the things that when you get thanked for your service. Like that includes standing for duty, yeah. right? Um, so, so not to say that I have to do combat art, I get to, right? And that there's a validation piece that comes along with it and a, an official piece that comes along with it. And um, it's, it's really interesting that I have the potential to participate in such a grand project which is the marine corps combat art collection and that my works can be submitted and then you know taken care of for yeah. eternity in history yeah um and going up to the national museum of the marine corps you see some incredible artwork in the galleries there but what's more awesome in my personal eye is we got a chance to go to the uh, museum support facility which is a couple of miles away from the museum and that's where like the no kidding archives are. So you're seeing like the iconic paintings of Iwo Jima um, and these original sketches drawn in Peleliu with uh, like no kidding carbon from a bonfire. Wow. And you're just like, man, this is incredible. And they're on rice paper or on the back of ammo boxes. 
And you're like, this is combat art. This is the essence of it. And just as much as a warfighter has a legacy to uphold mm-hmm. in a firefight, so too does a combat artist have a legacy to uphold to bring to bear the you know 70 years that the Marine Corps Combat Art Program has been in existence. Can you assess yourself as an artist how you are now versus how you were when you first got into the program? Because you haven't been in that long, but I mean, how has it been exponential growth with that billet and just the opportunities and the time to focus on it? So there's a networking aspect to it, which is really cool because um, you get a critical eye that other words would overlook you completely. Um, That's cool. But when I look back at like some of my first pieces of artwork from when I very first started taking a serious look at artwork, um, I look at them now and it's almost cringeworthy, but I show them to friends and they're like, man, this is actually really incredible. Um, But it's hit or miss, right? Um, the, The benefit to doing artwork long time. And when I look at some of these mentors, speed and accuracy are the two things that I'm trying to achieve that they're nailing down. Mm. And generationally that happens, you know, that struggle occurs at every corner. CJ is my mentor. His mentor is a guy named Richard Johnson, um, who on social media is at news illustrator. And you can see a lot of Richard Johnson's flavor and influence in CJ's work. Um, some of his work, right? Mm-hmm. CJ's incredibly talented and has a whole lot of different disciplines. Um, but just in the same, you can see like these family tree mm-hmm. lines of mm-hmm. influence from mm-hmm. generation to generation. Um, and when you look at, you know, s- certain people's style, you can see little glimpses of that style in their mentor. Or, or, or vice versa. You can see little glimpses of influence transcend the generations. And being able to get that kind of access for feedback across a spectrum of disciplines between mm-hmm. courtroom sketchers and painters and mm-hmm. um, you know urban sketchers and all these different disciplines coming together to provide you critique and influence. Um, specifically, I, I provided a brief during the um, sixth annual National Museum of the Marine Corps Combat Art Symposium. And CJ and I, before I was accepted into the program, I invited him down to the unit that I was in uh, and I said, hey, let's let's go draw this unit. Um, and it's a Marine Special Operations company. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty niche. It's really like interesting to look at. So we we go out and on day one, my stuff is trash. CJ's cranking them out left and right. And he's mm. firing on all cylinders. And I'm mm. trying to figure out where the key is to start the truck. Um, we do this for like three or four days. We go back to the studio. We work some more stuff. And when it's all finalized, we come up with our product list. So at the National Museum of the Marine Corps, we're briefing this engagement and the rapport that we've established and the insider-outsider boundaries um, Mm. and all of these different dynamics that go into creating artwork that documents the Marine Corps' history. Well, I've got my images up on the big screen. CJ had just briefed his images, and I'm just trying to mimic him. 
None of these people know who I am. They all know CJ because CJ has been part of the program. Mm -hmm. I'm just the new guy. So I've got my drawing, which is 18 by 24 charcoal sketch blown up onto this movie screen with people that I've been reading about and studying in books, right? Sitting in the audience. And I've got my clicker and I'm like, yep, this is a Marine that was like uh, hanging out, doing something next. Uh, this is a guy that was like hanging out and uh, about to shoot his gun next. All right. And here and from the stands, I heard Victor Juhas, who's mm. a brilliant illustrator, yeah. just scream, stop, shut up, go back three slides. Let us look at that. Let us really analyze what you're thinking about. And he started critiquing it. And he was like, number one, you were the biggest critique of your work because you don't appreciate it doesn't mean that everybody else can't. Uh. So even though you don't like it or you think you messed up, just shut up. Let other people draw those conclusions. You did this awesome thing with these leading lines and drawing the attention to, to the outside and bringing these people in from the darkness into the light. And like, he really starts going crazy wow. in this analysis. Yeah. And I leaned over to CJ and I said, Hey, CJ, anything that I did good in this drawing was purely unintentional. Um, so I can't take credit for it. Like it just happened. And he's like, Mike, that's exactly why you need to be part of the program because you're doing these things with, without even the intuition to try to build it that way. You've got the vision and that's what we need to um, figure out. So that was a really cool element to it. It seems to me, and this is something I talked about, I think with Chris, you probably know better than I do because since you just listened to the episode, you've listened to it a lot more recently than I did it. Um, there seems to be a tension, I would imagine, between an artist's natural, I don't want to say narcissism, because that's a little too strong, but an artist's natural need to express themselves and the mission to illustrate the stories of the Marine Corps. Do you find that because when you, especially when you're talking about speed and accuracy, um, you know, okay, accuracy, sure. Obviously there can't help, but be your DNA in that accuracy. Cause it's your perception. It's your, it's your hand. It's your eye that's influencing all of it. Do you think there is, do you find that to be a tension where you're going, Hey, if I were left to my own devices, I would capture this. And I'd kind of give the sense of it because there's kind of a spiritual sense of this scene that I'm trying to capture. I'm not as worried about the, you know, the patches and the tabs and the buttons and the, you know, where the finger placement is. That's not as interesting to me. And therefore you have to slow down and capture those because the Marine Corps is asking you to, or is it something that's very easy that you're like, no, I really want to do exactly what the Marine Corps is asking me and anything that I do, whatever is going on in my head or whatever my impulses are is secondary or tertiary. And I'm not as worried about that. Is that a tension? Am I, I'm again, I'm, I'm kind of hypothesizing on things I could see possibly being an issue. So I don't think so. Right. Whenever you are drawing, it is a reference, right? So we refer to things to be able to capture the essence of a scene. And the beauty is I can take an artist like Elise McKelvey, who's a Marine Corps combat artist, and I can take an individual like Chris Battles, pair them up on the exact same subject, right? There is a Marine standing next to a Humvee. Mm -hmm. and the two products that they're going to pr produce are going to be night and day different 
but both accurate representations of what we're looking right. at. This right. is the difference between looking at Norman Rockwell on the cover of Time magazine versus uh, the cover of Mad magazine with mm. um, you know somebody else. They both you know show the scene of somebody bringing a turkey into the Thanksgiving dinner, right? right? right. One is much more cartoonist in their style. One is much more accurate representation in their style. However, like both are incredible methods of expressing what's going on. And that's really what the Marine Corps is after with their combat artists. Tell America what the Marines are doing. And um, the very cool thing that I've experienced or learned about is that the Marine Corps' combat art program tries to pair up people with differing values in terms of uh, how they see things. If you can get, mm. um, and I'm going to use Victor Juhas and Richard Johnson as two of the civilian combat artists because their styles are um, very different. And if you look at Victor Juhas, he's with us, he's just never stopping. Whereas Richard is extremely mm. um, deliberate with his marks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, they both produce incredible images. Um, so it's important to be able to balance those different talents in an effort to produce the best looking artwork that tells the best story. And if there's one thing I can harp on about the Marine Corps combat art program, um, we had a guy named major Eric cash come out and speak at the symposium. And he brought to light some really good things from a non-artist's perspective about the Marine Corps Combat Art Program. Art, in its essence, is designed to make people think, right? And it doesn't it doesn't do anything more than, you know, indicate the tip of the iceberg for a greater conversation. And the thing I want to take away from from art, like the thing I want from art is to be able to invoke a conversation which makes people think more critically. Mm. And the thing that I really appreciate about it is if I can grab a group of Marines led by a young NCO, stand around a picture or painting and have them have a discussion surrounding three different questions. What do you see? What can you infer? And what else do you see? That allows them to start beginning to think critically of what they're looking at. So they scan their environment and they're more combat effective simply because they're opening the envelope of critical thinking. And that's supported by data that uh, Harvard Medical School did a, Mm. a study on doctors and dentists going through their curriculum and those who had studied fine art or taken an art elective class had an increased rate of initial diagnostic on their patients compared to those who did not. So a dentist who looked at fine art Mm. or practiced fine art or did bread making had a better ability to diagnose a patient's periodontal disease versus somebody who did not on the first time because they're looking for anomalies in their environment. And that's exactly what we're asking our Marines to do. If you're out on patrol, I want you to look for the pieces of disturbed earth and be able to effectively communicate that to the rest of your platoon so nobody steps on an IED and dies. 
And if I can do that through the lens of teaching art or studying fine art, then that's a win for me. Where does feeling come in? And I'm saying that because my my glib answer when people ask about the effect of art is always that I think it was Bob Dylan that said the greatest thing an artist can do is inspire. And I'm when I'm thinking of that, I think, and based on what you were just saying, I was like, sometimes, like I, I know, I know you know this feeling of being downrange, kind of at the low ebb of your energy, low ebb of your enthusiasm. And somebody pops on a movie that kind of makes you remember why the fuck you're doing this all in the first place, you know? And it's like that little boost, that little booster of inspiration, a booster shot of inspiration that makes you go, oh yeah, fuck yeah, that's why I do this, right? And I, do you see that in your art as well and in the Marine Corps combat art programs as well, that there's a role it has to inspire either active Marines but also maybe future Marines that it can inspire people to go shit. Yeah. I, I can't analyze it. I do, either don't know enough to analyze it or I, uh, you know, I'm not as interested in, in the details, but the effect of it is something that makes me want to get off my ass and do X, Y, and Z. Is there something totally. to that? I have folks reach out to me on social media all the time um, with some sort of connection to the artwork that I've got. Um, and in addition, I use social media, to tell stories of, to recount the stories of, of valor in recent years, um, specifically on a platform, TikTok, right? So um, much like when I was young in the Marine Corps, we would sit around an NCO and uh, on a training exercise or something, we didn't have a whole lot going on. We would start talking and thinking critically about these war heroes, right? And I use that term kind of loosely because I don't think anybody wants to be called a war hero. But we would talk about people like Sergeant Mitchell Page and John Bass alone and, um, you know, Chesty Puller, like all the big, mm -hmm. sure. big World War II guys. Um, and we would start breaking down their different things. Well, this is during a time where our generation has those same war heroes, but nobody's talking about them. Right. So right. like we right. went through recruit training in the, in the crucible where we went over the John Bassalone obstacle. And this was the, um, you know, whatever Tufel Hunden Hill or, or something. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, well, nobody's talking about the, you know, the Dunham or the Carpenter or the Vigiani actions right. that have happened in the last 10 years. So I turned to social media to start telling some of those stories. And sometimes it's uh, expressed through my artwork and I'll draw a picture of a person and then tell the story about that person. Um, and that's, that's cool, right? We get to illustrate some of that. But they, those stories always get a ton of traffic. And um, I get folks... All the time, they're like, hey, man, I was going to join the military, but I didn't know what branch in the Marine Corps is it now. Like, I figured it out. That's yeah, what I want to do yeah. based purely on this 90-second video. Wow. Um, and that, to me, is pretty life-changing. And I think that's stoking a fire, you know, stoking the flame of somebody else's fire just a little bit, but really putting to putting into fruition something that you know, can actually work. Do you do other art? 
I forgot to get back to circle back to that. I, yeah, do you, we did uh, Do you do other stuff? I mean, is it on your own? Is it is it something you feel you need to do, or is it like, hey, look, the thing that turns me on is the war story, and that's what I'm going to keep gravitating to, even in my own free time, even just for myself. Or is there times where you just are like, hey, let me get away from that for a second, or I want to do something else for a minute. So being a creative, you're always looking to do something. And idle hands and an idle brain make you get old. So I'm always doing something. I've always got a sketchbook. Um, Military art is cool. And as a Marine Corps combat artist, um, you don't get tasked every day to go draw something. So you're drawing whatever you can just to keep the skill set fresh. Gotcha. but I do enjoy drawing and painting other things. I've got hundreds of sketches of my kids mm. um, just because, you know, they're always generally around me sitting still somewhat. Um, I've got, you know, sketches of the house and out in town and the pier where I surf at. And, you know, there was some surf inspired artwork that I've done. There was some other stuff, um, but it's, you know, it's always experimentation and mm. experimentation breeds creativity, creativity breeds experimentation. So it's a catch 22 kind of situation where if all you do is draw pictures of Marines, like right. you're, you get very niche very quick. Um, but if you can branch out and experiment and some other stuff, then that's also really cool. Um, but primarily I try to do the military art thing um, just because it, those are cool stories to tell. It's um, it's not to say that I don't do other things. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a couple of months ago, I was in Fredericksburg, Virginia, visiting some friends. We went out to a baseball game, but before we went to the baseball game, I grabbed my sketchbook. Um, I told my wife, "Hey, I'll be back in a couple of hours." I went into downtown Fredericksburg. There's a ton of history there, and I saw the courthouse, and I was like, "Hey, this might be cool to try to draw." So I sat there for an hour. And I drew the courthouse. Um, and then you research it and figure out some of the history behind it. And then you try to put together a story about it. And, um, you know, it was, it was what does cool. that look like? Well, tell me about that. We see you put together a story. So you're sitting there, you're, you basically are killing time constructively by right. drawing this. So when you say you're going to tell a story about it, do you mean like verbally or like you're going to do a series of pictures that tell a story about the courthouse or like, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So I'm not quite in the, the, um, I, I haven't quite achieved the, you know, panel of artwork that I can use as like a publication to talk about it. But anytime you draw, anytime I draw something, I need to figure out why it's interesting other than just visually. Right. Mm. Like, what are the stories? And, and going back to those three questions that mm. I would ask the corporal to ask is, what do you see? Um, what can you infer from what you see and what else do you see? Right. So what I see is a building. Right. And what what facts do I know about that building or what can I figure out? Well, the building's relatively new. I don't think the courthouse is brand new in this town. Right. This this town has existed since the 1700s it had to have replaced something else. Where's that courthouse? Um, And what was the, you know, who practiced law at that courthouse? And why is this building new? Did the old building have renovations or whatever? So if you can pull out some of those facts through your own research, then you can tell a story, whether it be 
an Instagram story that, you know, a hundred people see or look at. Um, but it's, it's interesting to some people. And how do you pique that interest in those people who have interest in what you're doing or drawing or talking about? So it's like attaching a really around. cool, it's like attaching a really cool caption to the painting, to the, to the exactly drawing. right. Right. Okay. Exactly. Right. Got you. Got you. Got you. Is, is why is this relevant? Right. So, and how do we yeah. bring relevancy to it? Yeah, no, I, that makes complete sense. Besides subject matter, do you experiment with mediums? with different media as well. So you talk about painting and all that. Talk about that. Like what media are you comfortable in? What are you not comfortable in? What do you want to get more comfortable in? Is there any difference? Yeah. So um, I think I take comfort in charcoal. Um, it's just something that I've, it, it's what I worked with when I was in college. It was what I was really introduced to. Mm. Um, and by college, I mean, I took, eight weeks of a uh, draw naked people class. Um, so it's what I worked with in college. It was, it's really loose. It's easy to push around on paper. You can get great, you know, variation and value from darks to lights. Um, I've taken to the experimentation with watercolors um, in a very basic premise and I've looked into oil paints, right? So mm -hmm. I'm only, starting to break the surface with these things. And they're all things that I, I would very much so love to be able to sit down and do an oil painting. Um, I just don't know that much about it because I'm hundred percent self-taught. So everything that I'm learning is through watching instructional videos on, on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Wow. And then what I can get influenced by, by my mentors and friends. Um, so it's super interesting. It's really cool to be able to take apart somebody else's work and figure out how they did it. Um, but the iPad is introducing so much to artists in their ability to create really awesome pieces of visual art. And digital art is an emerging thing, probably within the last five or six years with the creation of an iPad and programs like Procreate and Adobe right. and all these other things. Right. Um, because you can simulate oil painting for $9.99, you know, two easy payments of $4.99. Right. You can simulate all those things. Vice, if I try to get into oil painting, I've got to go buy canvases or boards. I've got to buy brushes. I've got to buy different pigments. I've got to get thinners and brush washes and all of these different things. And then I've got to figure out how to actually use them. If I can do that for free on my iPad, then once I've, I don't want to say mastered it, but once I've got it figured out here, I can try to translate that to traditional methods. Um, and that's, that's really cool. And kind of how I'm building the experimentation that breeds creativity. Is there any doctrine about being able to take an iPad with you to sketch in the combat art program? Or is there, is the doctrine that you have to do it with a sketchbook? Cause you don't want to rely on electronics or anything. So I'm not a hundred percent certain on like the very specifics. Yeah. I should I have asked Chris you, battles this, yeah, but, yeah, but, 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 but you're bringing it up and it's an interesting, I hadn't thought of it before. So in recent discussions, I mean, even with Chris, like it is um, it's, it's new territory, right? And one of the big concerns is where's the original. 
and you get into um, you get into uh, curation and all this other stuff, but like, where does the original reside? And without getting into like NFT talk and the blockchain or Bitcoin right, or whatever right. it is, where's the original? Everything is a print of a digital piece of artwork. So I think there's some concerns there that the you know all of the services need to figure out relatively quick uh, because it's it's a really useful tool. And that's what it needs to be considered is a tool, just as much as a ruler is mm-hmm. to an artist a tool. Um, so too is an iPad. So, um, you and especially manipulate. for you guys, right? Because totally. now when you're totally kidding up, it's like, dude, it's an iPad. It's not my brushes and an easel and all that, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, and it, it's it's completely transportable. It's easy. Um, but one of the cool things is your sketchbook should be your journal and by saying that like in comparison to an author an author's finished book and published book is not just a copy of his sketchbook the sketchbook provides you the reference notes for which you later convert into a finished piece of fine art Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sometimes those original sketches can become the fine art just as much as sometimes an art uh, uh you know, an author can write a note on a piece of paper and then that gets published as a quote. Mm -hmm. So too can that happen, right? But ultimately what my perception is, is that your sketchbook is a tool to later develop your scenario because we're looking at a reference. We're not looking to replicate exactly what we see, but we're trying to convey the message of the scene, right? In an immersive experience. So if I can do that with my iPad um, and then convert it to an original painting or picture, um, I think I'm achieving what the Marine Corps is after. This is kind of a random question. Um, If instead of CJ Bauman, instead of running into him and having the experience you had with him that kind of affected the trajectory of your career, if I can't think of an apples to apples comparison, but if let's, let's just hypothesize some um, arts collective on the Lower East side of Manhattan approached you and said, Hey, Mike, leave the Marine Corps, come out here with us. Somehow we're, we're really well financed. We'll give you a salary. We'll do everything that the Marine Corps arts program does for you. Well, you'll have your work in, in, in perpetuity, well-preserved and all that come out here and, you know, we'll have everything. We'll have, you know, models and nude models. We'll have still life. We'll have different stuff. We'll have different assignments. We want to give you, we have some super rich guy that's funding all this and you can do that. I'll just leave the Marine Corps, come out here and do this. If that offer had been made to you at the same time as you ran into CJ Bauman, would that have been as appealing to you just for the opportunity to go, wow, somebody sees my talent and wants to help nurture me in this way? Or was there something about it being the Marine Corps and a furtherance of the career you had already had up to that point that made it more appealing to do that in the Marines? So without a doubt, I would have turned down that offer simply based on the idea that I had first enlisted in the Marine Corps based on patriotism and a desire to serve my country being an artist or being anything other than a Marine is 
icing on the cake, right? But foundationally, if you have a plate of icing and no cake, nobody wants to eat that. The thing that 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 makes me who I am is the foundational bedrock of being a Marine first and an artist second. And I think that's the really effective part of the Marine Corps Combat Art Program is that all of their artists are organically Marines first. Sure. And that art is a secondary action of being a Marine to be able to tell that story. So for the uniformed guys, that's really important to know. Um, or anybody who has the potential to apply to the program is you are a Marine first and an artist second. Um, just in the sense that, you know, every Marine is a rifleman, right? Um, granted, there is a distinction between big R being in the infantry and little R being everybody sure. else. Sure. Yeah. But, um, but every Marine is a rifleman just as much, you know, you are a warfighter first before you are a bulk fuel specialist or ammunition technician mm-hmm. or, sure. or whatever. You serve a, a greater purpose bigger than yourself. And that, to me, is is not worth being compensated, um, you know, above and beyond anything else. The the patriotism that I feel from service is uh, an unbeatable price. And I've, I've told myself at every opportunity where I've had to either stay in or get out, as soon as I'm not having fun or enjoying what I'm doing, and it it is a pendulum swing. It goes sure. from extreme end to extreme end right. where some days you're having a blast and some days you are at the bottom of the barrel. Um, but as long as the median of that pendulum swing stays on the positive side, I will stay in it. And so far I've had those really good days and I've had those really bad days, but the median of that has been um, let's continue this path. And if a day comes where I no longer enjoy what I do, I will get out and I will allow somebody else who's got a full pendulum swing Mm -hmm. to progress and take my spot. But, but yeah, that's no doubt. Where were you born? Where were you raised? So I was born outside of Philadelphia, uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, about 45 minutes North of the city. Um, and I moved around quite a bit. My father was, um, in, he did something with like rail cars. There's the public rail car system in Philadelphia. And then that got bought out by Kawasaki rail car. So we moved, you know, to, to Detroit and did some stuff there. And then, you know, my parents split my dad moved up to Massachusetts and New York, but interesting enough. And I didn't find this out really until uh, later in life. He also did artwork. So he was artistically talented and did all these oil paintings of rail cars for their advertisements. So like all of his oil painting stuff, I had no idea. Um, And he passed away a couple of years ago and I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, Hey, does he have any paintings? And um, you know, my stepmom and some other family members are like, Hey, we'll send you his brushes and his oil. Look, I can, I can buy all that stuff. I don't care about that. I care about like, what did he produce? So it's cool. I think there's a generational thing associated. We're going down a different rabbit hole. I think there's a generational thing when it comes to art Yes. as well, or genetic component to it. So my father was artistic. His father was artistic. And now in my children, one is like 
a brainiac and like always mm-hmm. doing something scientifically, but mm-hmm. you can see how he's got that critical thinking analysis and artistic mm-hmm. gene. The other one is an artist. He's always drawing something and it's so cool to be able to take what I'm learning and he, what I'm learning and convey that down to a seven-year-old brain and then say, Hey, instead of drawing the cup, draw the cup that's on a counter in the kitchen. And next thing you know, he's working on it. And I said, look, shapes, right? And we take open a book together and we're both reading it and studying it. And then we go do prac app and what he's producing versus what I'm producing influences what I produce and what I produce influences what it, it's so cool to be able to watch. That's very cool. I want to, since we're all talking about that, before I get back to you and your life, what's your view of arts especially at early ages. And I say that because I think I've mentioned this before on the show. Um, Once I I was talking with a woman who'd gone to Juilliard for, I think, acting or writing anyway. um, But so she was clearly talented, but she was working a hourly job as a supervisor in a call center. And she said, um, and she was like, and she was a supervisor and she was like cracking the whip and on top of everybody. And I remember her saying, um, and making a point of saying to me, she's like, the worst thing you can be as an artist is good at something else because everything's easier than art. And if you're good at anything else, you will always take that over your art. And as a result, and, and she's like, so her point being, obviously, that if you're a successful artist, it's because you weren't good at anything else. And therefore, you were able to dedicate yourself fully to your art. And, and simultaneously, the curse of being competent. And I've thought about that a lot. Um, n- not Obviously, not 100% uh, agreeing with it. But I think it's an interesting idea because I've certainly known a lot of artists who have struggled at very basic tasks in life, uh, but being wildly talented and wildly imaginative in their own art. But at the same time... Um, you know, we're seeing in the veteran community and you are a living proof of, you know, going down a warrior path and then finding an artistic respite and artistic way of messaging your experiences is crucial. So now when you see your son developing those capabilities, what's your read on it? Where do you, what art, what place do you think art should have for kids and for people that maybe haven't had the chance to get dirt under their nails yet? What role do you think it has? Do you th- uh, does it need to take uh, you know a top tier billing in their lives if they're interested, or is the kind of thing that should be you know done really as an extracurricular? I mean, how do you feel about it? So, back to another quote: "A jack of all trades is a master of none." But that's not where it ends. It continues and says, "But a um, a jack of all trades is a master of none." But a master of one is better than a master, master of, of none. none. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or a jack, something like that. But, but essentially saying um, the more well-rounded you are, the more, you know, you can tie into a myriad of different challenges. And ultimately, as a parent, I think it's important not to prepare ourselves or our children for a specific career path, but rather to engage their brains to be able to handle any situation that comes their way, because we're a generation away from, you know, 
being the same United States that we are now. And it could be very different 20 years from now than what we're used to right now. Uh, and I think my parents would have said the same thing when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So it's, you want to establish two different things, particularly with my children, the things that I want to establish is roots and wings, right? So I want them to be rooted in the foundation of being a wholesome individual in society um, and having firm um, beliefs, right? But I also want to give them the freedom to be able to explore the world around them and be able to think critically of their environment and be able to effectively perform no matter what their task is. And if I can do those things, I, I think it's best said as providing our children with roots and wings. And where does the artwork come into that piece? I think art is a feather upon the wings in which they use to fly. And it is only a tool that they can put in their belt to be able to see where they want to go. And if I see my artwork come out in simple things like attention to detail, right? In my day-to-day -day mm -hmm. job as a Marine, um, granted, I'm at a, a point now where I prepare PowerPoint presentations and stuff, right? But it's, it's those subtle art things like the golden rule or go, golden ratio of you know, when you look at it, it's 1.618. Um, to play that into the font size of a PowerPoint slide makes it easier to read and makes it more attractive mm -hmm. to the eye. And it makes people like not freak out, right? Mm -hmm. But if I just pick fonts at random that don't make any sense, and I just said, okay, that looks good to me. Well, well, why does it look good to you? It, it probably looks good. Like if you ever look at something on a uh, graphic design, it looks good because it follows that golden ratio of 1.618, right? So when you look at a font size, uh, you'll increase or decrease it by that golden ratio, depending on where it falls in the PowerPoint slide. So, so little subtle nuances like that have, have that understanding of art has absolutely nothing to do with the manpower slide that I'm putting together to figure out where 75 people are going this summer. But it does play into the fact of it's one less thing that's distracting and I can get you to look at the subject in which I'm trying to get you to focus on. That to me is a win. Interesting. That's, I think it's, I, I, and I'll just say the roots and wings thing, I think is a beautifully effective way of looking at, at education. I think that's really, that's really sharp. I really like that. For you growing up, you had no artistic interest. Did you have some artistic interest? Who were you as a kid? Were you an athlete more or what were you focused on? So as a student, I was a student. Um, I ended up getting a academic scholarship to Temple University through high school. So academics. I really enjoyed artwork and every single one of my notebooks was, you know, every book had a scribble in it or there was some doodle or drawing and I can remember sitting in, we had study hall and the first time, um, and it was like an hour long block of, you know, you're supposed to sit in silence and, you know, work on your homework or whatever. Um, but I can remember sitting in this auditorium with my notebook and drawing a perspective drawing where, you know, 
in the drawing, you see my hand, my notebook, and the seats around me and the other students and the little teacher way down here at the bottom of the page um, and the big auditorium and the curtains and completely immersive, like a, like a 3d photo. Um, And then it's really cool. I was doing that 20, 22 years ago when I was in high school and then to watch people like Paul Heaston, who's on Instagram, who is fantastic at doing that and being able to look at his work now and be like, man, that's awesome. I was doing the high school version of what he's doing professionally now. And had I seen his work 25 years ago, what would my trajectory be? Um, but yeah, as a student in high school, um, I think I was academically gifted in the fact that like I enjoyed schoolwork. I enjoyed learning. Um, I was always trying to learn something new. Um, I stayed, I did different, you know, sports and, and extracurricular activities in high school. Um, I started working at a, I think 14, my first job was at a donut shop mopping floors. Um, and then from 14, you know, up until I joined the Marine Corps, I, I had a job. I was on a, I was on the track team. Um, I played lacrosse. I was on the bowling team because I was trying to chase a girl who was on the bowling team. Um, I was a terrible bowler, but, uh, you know, it's, it was fun, you know, and there's, there's the young adolescence that goes through learning how to live life and, you know, thinking that everything that you're doing is correct. When in fact, it's not, you're just it's discovery by learning. Um, and I think I capitalized on that. And then it was ultimately like the reality of life hit when I watched those uh, airplanes hit the twin towers. And I said, look, this is, I can continue to chase my tail and figure out what different alcohol tastes like, or I can join the Marine Corps and do something that's greater than myself. So that and you can still passion. find out what different alcohols taste like in the Marine absolutely, Corps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Get paid for it. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. You just, you, you, know, you right, go taste ahead. them in different parts of the country. That, that's right. And some of different parts of the world too. You know, you, get, exactly you, get, right. get, you get even pure, uh, pure strains of alcohol. <laughs> so, I'm interested, though, that you said, um, I forget his name. Did you say Paul Hastings? John Hastings? was uh, Paul Heaston. Paul Heaston, sorry. H-E-A-S-T-O-N. I'm interested that you said if you'd seen his work in high school, you could have had a whole different trajectory. And I don't want to put too much weight on that. But that's interesting because it seems like you were very, to use the very 2022 word, you were very intentional with your life and how and the choices you made. Do you... Is there a part of you that does wonder how life could have played out differently had you not enlisted in the Marines or had you found art earlier? Uh, no, not necessarily. I don't, I don't think I want to dwell on what could have been, right? Because yeah. then we go down the, the path of Ashton Kutcher's movie, uh, The Butterfly Effect. I think that was him at least, right? And like every string that you pull changes the different variable. Right. And right. Uh, I try not to dwell on it because yeah. – you know, we've, we've got to focus on what's in front of us. Sure. Um, and we'll, if we focus too much on what's behind us, then we lose vision of where we're going. So 100%. Um, yep. that's why your rear view mirror is smaller than your windshield. Fair enough. And, and, and that ab- obviously is an incredibly healthy way to look at it. I do think it's interesting because I, I was, uh, obviously we're getting to nine 11 and the effect that had, but 
I mean, that was um, that was a move that you made to join the Marines that truly, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put my thumb on the scale and just say what I think. I think that's one of the, I think that's among the best in America that we're thinking of doing that and that made the leap then. And the fact that now, 20 plus years later, you're still in the Marines is a real hell of a thing because there's not a lot of Marines the last 20 years in the Marine Corps. I mean, that, that really is something. What did you find when you got to the Marine Corps? Did you feel a sense that you were home? Did you feel a sense of satisfaction? Did you go, holy shit, I've got to really raise my game. This is more than I bargained for. Like, what was your initial takeaway? What was the initial shock of jumping in that pool? Like, I think, so there was a lot of adventure associated with it right and the recruiters give you all this spiel and they've got these colored pieces of plastic with different words on them and stuff and and um in speaking with the recruiters now um you know after developing friendships and after they've moved on from recruiting they say there's two individuals or there's two cards that individuals pick that traditionally turn them into quote-unquote lifers right and those cards are pride of belonging and travel and adventure. Huh. Um, other ones are like educational benefits and like um, familial history or something like that. Like there's all these other, they call them benefit tags. Um, but I was never a recruiter. So I can't base this on anything other than the conversations I've had. But people have said that if you pick one of those two cards as the reason you enlisted in the Marine Corps, pride of belonging and travel and adventure, those people tend to stick around longer because their, their appetite is quenched on day one, right? You say, Hey, I want to belong to something bigger than myself and I want travel and adventure. Well, guess what? Get your butt onto an airplane and fly down to this different part of the world you've never been at. Put a check in your box for travel oh, it's an adventure going to recruit training. I'll tell you that. And you want to belong to something bigger than yourself? How's about we do that by stripping away your own identif- identity? You have to refer to yourself in the third fate or in the third person. Um, and you're no longer who you were, right? We're going to tear you down and build you back up. So right off the bat, within the first you know 30 minutes of um, applying to be a Marine, right? We don't have to be Marines, we get to be Marines. And within the first, you know, 30 minutes of showing up on Paris Island, I'm like, hey, this is exactly what I signed up for. Great. I'm getting yelled at. I don't even know what I did wrong. Excuse me. Um, so it ends up being a lot of fun. And then throughout my career, like I said, it's a pendulum swing. Sometimes those cups are full. Sometimes they're completely dry. But on the days that they're getting full, man, travel and adventure, what better place to go than spring break 2004 to, you know, Iraq. Um, You're going to travel and you're going to see some adventure. You want to belong to somebody? Cool. Hey, Reynolds, we need you to make a T-shirt design. It needs to be better than everybody else in the battalion because we're the best. I got it. Let's do it. How's about a half-naked Spartan guy pulling a lanyard on a howitzer? Yeah, slap it on a T-shirt. Let's do it. We're the best. Right. And, and that was, that's what it was. It doesn't matter if we were, or we're not the best. We relied upon each other to be able to get the job done. And, you know, those two benefit tags were being fulfilled. So um, I don't know where that question originated, but that's where it went. No, uh, no, that, that answers a ton. Um, And I think, I think that's eminently relatable. 
for you, what have been the low ebbs? Has it been, um, has it come back to sense of purpose, sense of belonging, or has it been just a single assignment that just kind of sucks or, or personality based conflicts and that kind of thing? Like what for you has been the tougher part of the military to deal with? So bar none, the most difficult part, uh, December 3rd, 2004, two of my friends, uh, Matthew Wyatt and Ben Lee were killed in action in Iraq. Um, they were in, uh, another platoon of the battery or artillery company that we were in. Um, and since then, we're, we're approaching 20 years um, since that happened. And um, part of getting through those bad days is just remembering them and saying, man, I don't know if they would have stayed in the Marine Corps or not, but I've got the choice to do that. They don't. Right. And they were stripped of that ability. And um, so to me, like that's that's the bottom like that's the worst day I think I've had in the Marine Corps. I, I can very vividly remember exactly where it was at just as much as like, I think everybody in the United States that was alive at the time that was, you know, of free thought remembers exactly where they were at on nine 11 mm-hmm. um, that morning. Right. Um, my uh, platoon was on the western border of Iraq and Syria, and we were at a place called Fab Walid. And Walid, um, we were running a traffic, like vehicle checkpoint, um, restricting movement from Syria into Iraq to essentially stop anybody from supporting the insurgency that was occurring in Fallujah during Operation Phantom Fury. So my squad leader. Uh, was sick that day, uh, had the flu or stomach bug or something like that. So I was the assistant squad leader. So I took my squad from our FOB or forward operating base, you know, two miles down the road to this vehicle checkpoint where we had set up. And it was super mundane. Every day we were doing the same thing for six months. Um, It was checking people's passports, telling them to turn around and go back to Syria, interacting with people, bringing our canine handler out, everything. Um, and at nighttime during the hours of darkness, we would shut down the border completely. Everybody would sleep in their cars and we would just, you know, stand around a 55 gallon drum, burning whatever trash or tires or gasoline that we had to stay warm. And I can remember on, <clears throat> on December 3rd, um, sitting by this burn barrel and getting a call on the radio that QRF was coming out to us quick reaction force. It's like the, um, you know, additional people coming from the fob to come to us. So I look around and I'm like, Hey, what did we do? Like either a, I've done a poor job of reporting something or B they've got a report that we're about to get attacked or there's something going on that they need to come out here and like, you know, build up. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and no idea what's going on. Um, And my platoon sergeant comes up. And at the time, I'm a corporal. And the platoon sergeant comes up, a guy named Staff Sergeant Trevor Townsend. And he's like, hey, um, I need to talk to you real quick. So I was like, all right, cool. Hey, you guys, you know, do this, do this, do this. And he just like very objectively breaks the news. He's like, hey, the other platoon was just attacked. 
um, like an hour ago, a suicide born improvised explosive device um, to the tune of 500 pounds of um, explosives was loaded into a water truck. It drove through the gate at the other FOB where our other platoon is. Um, a bunch of Marines were injured. Two of them were killed, uh, Lee and Wyatt. Uh, we need to heighten our awareness here and be prepared for an attack here as well. I need you to inform the rest of your squad. And these guys are all, like, we're all friends. We're, we're a couple of months into this deployment, but we've done months of workups up to this point. And we're all, like, everybody knows each other. Matt, Wyatt, and I, like, we would drive around in his little S10 in North Carolina and go to different bars trying to pick up loose women, right? Like, we were, we were just friends. We were homies. Um, and for the first time, like, that really hurt. And on the inside, I wanted to like break down and cry and like, man, he's gone. That That's terrible. But your windshield's bigger than your rear view mirror for a reason, right? I'll deal with that later. Right now, I've got to prepare for a counterattack. So no more of us happen to die today. So I just walked around and um, I talked to everybody in my platoon. I talked to all my fire team leaders. And I said, hey, here's the deal. Um, this has happened. This is what we need to do about it. It's super objective. We can talk about our feelings later, but right now be prepared for X, Y, and Z. Um, and it wasn't until like years later that I really dwelled upon it in a personal sense, right? And um, it, it was emotional, just as much as it's emotional today. But like, that's the low point. And um, I think I've used that as a stepping stone to be able to teach the people around me the reason why we do things, right? And talk about some of the instances that we encountered on that deployment and some of the things and the friendships that we build and the trust that we establish. Like all of those experiences collectively make me who I am today. And if I can at any way take my bucket and a couple of drops from my bucket and be able to put them in somebody else's bucket, that to me is effective. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I should ask, cause I feel like you're, you're, you've teed yourself into the perfect position to be able to say something about this. Um, I feel like I should ask you to, to kind of give a sales pitch to the mil the active military and veteran community on the value of art. Do you, and I'll put it in the form of a question. Do you think more veterans, more active duty personnel should look into art? Do you think, um, do you, or do you, do you think there's things that people are missing that opportunities they're missing by not exercising those artistic muscles? Um, do you think it's worth, flashing the bat signal and saying, yeah, guys, pick up a paintbrush or pick up a pen or find whatever medium it is that allows you to communicate and, and, uh, tap into that, that right brain for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. And, um, I think you, you brought to light a couple of really good examples. Art is not the only form of art. Drawings, paintings, and pictures is not the only form of art. We see people like Justin Egan and Mason Rodriguez who are uh, incredible writers who have put together some of um, their experiences in the form of poetry and writing 
and sharing those things. And when we think about the Marine Corps, we, we often think about refrigerators with arms, legs, and helmets, and guns, just giant, massive guys who are designed to you know, break glass in case of war, send them to war and fill them with beer every once in a while. Um, but at the same point, like they are full of emotion and uh, other, like there are two sides to their brain. I think there's also two sides to artwork. There's left of bang and right of bang thinking. So left of bang is the preparatory actions before conflict, right? The things that we can do to prepare ourselves for the realities of war. Those can be talking about and discussing artwork or poetry or writing or reading. I think the Marine Corps capitalizes on the study of um, things through reading, right? With the Commandant's reading list and, you know, books like First to Fight, um, we can read about things to prepare us for conflict. Just in the same, we can use artwork as a tool to prepare us for those grim realities of war. A lot of times the first exposure to war is through media, right? And that's watching Generation Kill or watching mm-hmm. uh, full, jet, full Metal Jacket. Like mm-hmm. those experiences can kind of be conveyed that way. But the most realistic way is for a firsthand representation through the lens of an artist's eye. Um, that's a very effective way, especially if you tie that into um, small unit leadership, having discussions, talking about those three questions. What do you see? What can you incur? What can you infer? And what else do you see? So that's all left of bang. And then right of bang, there's the therapeutic side to it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you, you, I've tended to see a lot more people gravitating towards the right of bang therapeutic thing after service talking about like, Hey, I can use my artwork to express my emotions and feelings. I think that's really important as well. Um, But to go back to your question, what can we tell service members why artwork is effective? And I think it's because just as much as you can pick up a book and read and study the environment you're going to go to, you can also do that through illustration. Um, and be able to immerse yourself in that creative thinking mind in order to be more combat effective. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I, if I can piggyback one thing on, you got me thinking everything um, you described is benefits for the individual. And I think art also has to have, ha- doesn't have to have, but does have immense benefits for others. And it weaponizes, for lack of a better word, it weaponizes or, or exploits an individual's experience for the benefit of those looking at the art. And I think that's really important because I think when we're looking at the civ mill divide that we see in the country, where so few have served, so many are looking to try to get some glimpse as to what the realities of a life in service are. I think it's really important for veterans to be able to communicate that kind of like we said up front and that, that, that effect, like all the great things, whether it's left a bang or right a bang that they do for themselves to get themselves squared away and get themselves focused or, or healed or taken care of. But also there's second and third order effects that are really going to benefit people coming to look at that art and go, Oh shit. I think I understand that a little bit more now. And maybe your service doesn't need to die with you that it can actually be a, be a force multiplier and let others 
give, give others a little bit of a window into what that life is like and the benefits and the values of that life. Precisely. I'm piggybacking on what you said, but yes, it, it just, it, it, it made me uh, go to that place. Mike, uh, now, how much of your life in the Marine Corps now is spent doing combat art? I'm not entirely sure how the billet works. Is it, are you doing that day in, day out? I know you're with MARSOC in some capacity right now, but what does that look like? Are you, is it 60, 40 combat art versus day job or are they, or, or is it, what's the dynamic? So um, I'm, again, relatively new to the Marine Corps Combat Art Program. I've only officially been part of it for about 90 days. I have not done any, um, no kidding, assignments yet. So everything that I've done um, has been of my own accord. Where I work at, um, we've got tons of ranges and exercises always going on. You're on a military compound with um, some really cool stuff happening around you. So within relatively close proximity of my desk, where I am, the Marine Corps pays to employ me to work a keyboard, right? Um, I've got to delicately balance being able to effectively get that job done. And then on the side, I'm doing this thing, right? So my main course is eating the steak, being an ammunition officer. But I've also got some mashed potatoes as a combat artist, right? And my dad's not going to yell at me if I don't touch the mashed potatoes, but he's going to yell at me if I don't eat the steak. Right. So that's, that's the, um, that's the balance of it. So what's cool is we've got a ton of freedom to be able to draw what we think is important. And then those drawings, paintings, pictures, or whatever get packed up and sent to the museum and they say, yeah, we'll take it or no, we don't really need this. So to me, it's win-win. Yeah. If on a Friday afternoon, I've got nothing going on on my calendar and there's a pistol range, let's go down there and draw some of the Marines that are shooting on the pistol range. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a helicopter hull sitting a quarter mile from where I live. And there's, you know, Marines practicing parachute landing falls out of them. Let's go draw them. And, it, you know, it makes for some really cool pastime. Yeah. Um, but other words, I'm going to sit on my computer and watch YouTube videos, <laughs> you know? So why not be, why not yeah. be productive? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mike, let everybody know where they can follow you, um, how they can reach out to you, the website, all that stuff. Um, Cause I think, um, I think people will, and I think they should. Yeah. Thank you. So um, first of all, a plug for the Marine Corps combat art program. If you're not already following it, hit it up on Facebook, USMC combat art. Um, Instagram is USMC combat art, all one word. If you're looking for me specifically, I'm on Instagram primarily at 40 Mike, Mike, uh, art. It's 40 underscore Mike, underscore Mike, underscore art. Sorry. 40 Mike, Mike art, all separated by underscores. Um, because my name is Mike, I deal with ammunition. 40 Mike, Mike is what we call it. So I thought it was a cool play on word. Um, I'm also at 40mikemikeart.com where I sell some of my prints um, that are available for sale. And those those sales pretty much just buy supplies to create more artwork. Well, we'll certainly tag all that in the show notes. Dude, this was awesome, man. Um, come back. Let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this discussion. It's been a blast, man. Uh, to be continued. Awesome. That was the savage wonder of Mike Reynolds. I really enjoyed talking to Mike. What a great dude. Such an interesting 
curious, like when I say curious, what I mean is like intellectually curious, like somebody that really prizes thought, prizes thinking, prizes questioning and probing and, you know, pursuing those enlightenment ideals. Anyway, uh, really enjoyed it. So on that note, um, this is typically where I do all my shameless plugs for vet rep. And I guess the first thing I'll say is in case I forget anything, which I'm sure I will, you can always find out everything that's going on at Veterans Repertory Theater by going to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. And when you go there, it's our catch-all. You'll see all the lines of effort we have going on, anything that's public-facing that you guys would be interested in, you can pretty much find there, including links to our Savage Wonder website um, at savagewonder.com, all one word, savagewonder.com. If you go there, that's all of our lines of effort specifically for veterans in artistic media that are not theater. Um, but, you know, you can find, well, we try to double post a lot of that stuff on vetrep.org also, and certainly it has plenty of links to go to Savage Wonder uh, if you're on vetrep. Uh, the other great thing to do, the way to make it really easy, because sometimes it's just too much of a pain in the butt to go to a website I highly recommend everybody, if you haven't already, sign up on our, our for our mailing list. Our mailing list doubles as our literary blog, so every day you receive an email in your inbox <clears throat> featuring veteran writing. Um, we probably should do veteran art too, now that I'm thinking about it. That probably wouldn't be a terrible idea. I don't know. Anyway, so i got to think about that. But uh, if you guys, if that sounds good to you, by all means, let me know. Uh, we can we can talk about doing that. I don't know why that didn't really cross my mind before. Anyway, um, so every day in your inbox, you will receive uh, a piece of, you know, veteran writing, usually fiction, poetry, um, what have you. We've done a couple of short stories. Um, so every day that shows up in your inbox, and then below that, we put a bunch of shameless plugs so you can see different lines of effort that we have going on. And, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're grateful to the many, many, many people, uh, that have signed up now for the blog. And, um, I just want to encourage you guys to do that because that's a great way to stay in touch, find out what we have going on. <clears throat> but there are a couple things I can tell you about. Um, one, April 13th, we are back in the DC area in Old Town Alexandria at the principal gallery for another Savage Wonderground. Uh, talent, theme, narrative, what have you, uh, to be announced later. But at 6 p.m. on April 13th, we will be there at Principal Gallery for our second Savage Wonderground. And that is a very cool space. Uh, Michelle Marceau that runs uh, Principal Gallery has actually just done, just done some renovation. So the space is even going to look a little bit different. Not uh, not wildly different, but a little bit different than it did before. <clears throat> so that'll be cool. Um, so we'll have different space to play in. And as you guys may or may not know, or should know, uh, each one of our Savage Wonderground shows is completely different because it's completely engineered based off of the talent that we have and the space we're in. Um, so we build a completely new show every time out. And that will be a great immersive art performance where We'll have some, I, I, I don't know exactly who we're going to have yet, but uh, there will be music. 
there will be storytelling. There will be, there may be some poetry. There may be some theater. I don't know. So there's going to be a bunch of stuff, but it will all be unified in one theme and or one narrative um, to make a cohesive, cool, awesome, memorable show for you guys. So April 13th. Um, for all the information on that, you can go to savagewonder.com and you'll see it, or you can go to vetrep.org and you'll see uh, how to get tickets for it there. Tickets are alive, so they're there. So if you go to it, you will be able to get tickets right now. Tickets are $20, and we split all the proceeds evenly with our veteran talent that's there. So if you're in the area, we would love to see you. It'll be a very, very, very cool night there. Is that the only thing I can tell you guys about? I think it is. I don't think I have anything else to tell you. We do have our industry read on January 23rd. Unfortunately, you guys, most of you can't come to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. We did a lot of bragging about it. I know in last week's episode, and um, I'm, I continue to brag about it. Uh, we're thrilled to be um, doing our first industry read of Deborah Yarchin's play, The Calm Before, brand new play. And we were blessed to get the wildly talented Jessica Blank to direct it and Broadway star Krista Rodriguez to star in it and phenomenal character actor Michael Gaston, and again, another Broadway veteran, uh, to take the other lead. And just a great cast. It's a great cast. We're super proud of it. Um, and to do an industry read, uh, get ourselves a strong co-producer and see where it goes from here is really cool. So I'm just bragging. Um, it's an invite-only thing uh, for industry people uh, who'd be interested in co-producing the play. So unfortunately, it's not for the public, but I'm just being a dick and telling you guys about it anyway. I mean, we put out a press release. It's not a secret. But I have nothing else to mention, so I'm mentioning that. And if you're still listening at this point, you're kind of a glutton for punishment. So I, I can babble and talk about this or that for hours. So, you know, um, by all means, tune out if you need to at this point. You've done your service. You, you heard Mike, and that's the most important thing. Okay, uh, I don't. I actually don't think there's really a whole lot else though that I do have to say. Um, yeah, sign up on the blog. Uh, you can see how to do that. Go to vetrep.org. Go to the Now Playing tab. You'll see where the blog is. It's a free subscription. Sign up there. Stay on top of everything we're doing. And support veteran writers and poets and uh, all that that are writing every day on the blog. It's very cool stuff. Okay, uh, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal who um, has been steadfast and staunch in getting these episodes out and making me look, and or not look, sound um, as good as I possibly can. So I, I appreciate Mike doing that. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theaters. See you next time when we will talk to another veteran about their own personal savage wonder. <laughs>